to another edition of The Word of God, where we look at the daily lectionary in the Book of Common Prayer and go through the readings in preparation for all of us reading these wonderful words from Scripture throughout the week. Now, we will be looking at the seventh Sunday of Easter. The seventh Sunday of Easter. Okay, how did we get here? Well, remember, there's the coming of the Lord. And we celebrate four weeks in the season of Advent, at the end of November and all of December. Then Jesus comes, the Messiah, celebrated on Christmas Day, as all of you know. And there are a couple of Sundays, usually, where we'll be celebrating Christmas. After Christmas is Epiphany. And at Epiphany, Jesus shows himself. Epiphanos is the Greek word appearing. He's going to show himself beginning with the coming of the Magi who offer him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. He's going to begin to do ministry and miracles and teachings, and he's going to be sharing with us the word of God. We will do that for several weeks depending on when Easter is. Interestingly, Epiphany has a movable schedule. Then we go to Lent, which is not movable. It begins with Ash Wednesday and concludes with Easter. And Lent has five Sundays in Lent. We celebrate Holy Week, where we go from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, followed by seven Sundays of Easter. And we are at the seventh Sunday. Now, in this seventh Sunday, we conclude the week with Pentecost, which we will be doing in this afternoon. We'll be looking at Pentecost, concluding the week. And then next week, I will be sharing with you how we go from there, which will be the second half of the church year that has to deal with all the weeks after Pentecost. So this is a very important week, seventh uh, Sunday of Easter, because we'll be celebrating the conclusion of Easter with the great feast of Pentecost. Now we'll be looking at the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. We'll be looking at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at the gospel readings in Luke. Now, as all of you know, we have been studying Luke for some time now. So there's a continuation of Luke. Let's begin in Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16 to 27. He says, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And so Ezekiel is set up in a very important motif called a watchman. The watchman stands on a high tower. And if there are invading folks and seemingly bad folks that are coming toward the city, here is to let them know that they are coming and to announce what is happening. Then the people prepare for that. So a watchman prepares us with the word of the Lord. And that's a very important idea. So please enjoy the book of Ezekiel chapter three. Then we look at chapter four, the siege of Jerusalem. Now, Israel is going through a tremendous amount at this time that uh, Ezekiel is writing. This is has to do with the movement of the people from Israel into Babylon, the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, 
and then later on with the restoration where they come back from Babylon and settle back into Egypt. And so chapter four uh, is this wonderful um, parable, wonderful reading about uh, that particular situation. We go then to Ezekiel chapter seven, the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord is a very important motif in the Old Testament. The coming of the day of the Lord, when the Lord begins to bring judgment on his people. Now, from Genesis to Malachi, which is the Old Testament, we're looking at the idea that God tells us to follow his will and to do his will. If the people of God will do that, then God will bless them. If the people of God will not do that, then the wrath of the Lord will be revealed. And you, O son of man, verse 2 of chapter 7, and thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, and in the end is come upon the four corners of the land. Now, one of the things that's very difficult about Ezekiel is the way that he talks about the end time. And so folks have been trying to figure out, commentators, scholars have been trying to figure out for a couple of millennia now, what does all of that mean? Behold the day, verse 10, behold it comes, your doom has come, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded, violence has grown up into the rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there be preeminence among them. The day has come, the day has arrived, the day of the Lord has come. So what we need to know is that it's going to come and that we want to be ready when it comes. So please read that very, very carefully. In Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning with the 14th verse, we have another extraordinary reading from Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is not as plain spoken as Jeremiah is and Isaiah. He's got a lot of mystical language. He's got a lot of symbolic language. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what exactly he is saying. So a lot of folks don't like to deal with Ezekiel because he's hard to figure out. It's hard to understand. What is God saying to me? Now, remember what we said about biblical interpretation. You want to look at what is the Bible saying to that particular group of people at that time? So the context is go back to that time. Then after you've figured out what God is saying to them, then you prayerfully consider what God is saying to you. Ezekiel 18. Now I like Ezekiel 18 because God is begging the sinner to turn to him and to repent. So this is wonderful uh, chapter, chapter 18 of Ezekiel, where God is asking the wicked person to turn from their ways. Look what he says in 1821. If a wicked person turns away from all of his sins that he has committed and keeps all of my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now remember, I just got finished saying that from Genesis to Malachi, God implores us to do his will. He implores us to listen to his, to his word. He implores us to keep his statutes. If the person, the family, the individuals, the nation will do that, then they will live and not die. None of the transgressions he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Chapter 18, verse 23 declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So when a righteous person turns away from righteousness and does injustice 
and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? Rhetorical question. None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for him, he shall die. So it's important to do the will of the Lord. It's important to know what the will of the Lord is. It's important to hear it. And this is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, 17 to 31. Turn to Ezekiel 34, 17 to 31. Now this is the famous chapter, and we've talked about it before, about the shepherds of Israel, leading the shepherds of Israel, leading them. Um, look at what he says in verse 17. As for you, my flock, that says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? And to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden under your feet and drink what you have muddled with your feet? Therefore, I will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. So again, he's describing the situation. He's describing what's going on. Then he makes a judgment as to whether he's going to bless or he's going to curse. Whether there'll be blessing from the Lord because of obedience or wrath from the Lord because of sinful actions. Now, what's so important about reading the Bible on a regular and daily basis is you want that kind of thinking and that kind of understanding that God has about our actions and about his will to be impregnated, if I could use that term, into us. That that becomes a way that you think. Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, 1 through 12. He led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of the coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal. I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Again, this fantastic vision that Ezekiel has. Not only a vision, it's actual reality to him. He sees the power of God. So Ezekiel shows us the glory of God. He shows us the wrath of God. He shows us the day of the Lord that's coming against sin. He shows the glory of the Lord in blessing those that will act and do justly. So again, a beautiful example of the presence of God, this intimacy that Ezekiel has with God Almighty and how God has revealed himself to Ezekiel. Let's turn to Hebrews. Hebrews, as I've said to you before, is a difficult book. It is a very powerful book. And the person writing it was very, very knowledgeable about the Old Testament, very knowledgeable about Judaism and the Jewish culture and way of life. And so what he does is he joins his understanding of who Christ was and is with the Jewish understanding of the scriptures and then brings them together in this extraordinary synthesis. And we learn more about Christ and how Christ fits into the Old and New Testament through Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, very famous text. Let us therefore leave the elementary doctrines of Christ, verse 1, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. 
So he's showing us the importance of knowing this information, sharing this information, having this information, inculcate your daily habits, inculcate your life, fill your life with its richness. Now, if you won't take the, down this information and if you do not do what is said, and if you tasted the goodness of God and the word of God in verse five and the powers of the age to come and you've fallen away, then he talks about the consequences of doing that. Very powerful text, 6, 13 to 20, a promise to Abraham. So again, he's showing us how he goes to Abraham. This person is very well-versed, this author is very well-versed in the Old Testament. And he is taking the evidence of the Old Testament and he's coupling it with what Christ has done. Remember, he's writing it obviously after Christ has been resurrected. And he's showing how the, that works together. And what the meaning and what God was saying with Abraham, now coupled with Christ, he's interpreting that for us. And he's accentuating Christ's benefit, Christ's life, Christ's resurrection, Christ's coming in such a way that we will fully appreciate what God has done, even beginning with Abraham. We look at chapter 7, the priestly order of Melchizedek. Uh, this is a very powerful uh, series of passages that talk about the king of Salem, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed Now this is in one of the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, to understand who Melchizedek is and how he fits in this is no easy chore. If you know the rest of the New Testament pretty well, you'll notice that very few authors, if any, say anything about Melchizedek except Hebrews. So this is quite an audacious undertaking on his part. He'd said he's without father or mother or genealogy, he having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That he ties that into that, and then later on in chapter seven, he talks about being compared to Melchizedek. Again, when you get into this kind of study and this kind of reading, just you can read it straight out, and I think you'll enjoy it. But if you wanted to do some commentary work on it, you'll appreciate the profundity and the depth of these passages much more. But reading it is a good first step. So I hope that you enjoy that. Toward the end of the week, we look at Hebrews 8 and 9. Jesus is a high priest of a better covenant. And he talks, the author talks about the first covenant and what happened there and talks about what Christ does and how Christ fulfills that covenant. As I said earlier in Hebrews, you had this wonderful juxtaposition between the Old Testament and the New and trying to tie that together and see how Christ fits that. It is again, quite an extraordinary book. And um, again, I commend it to your reading, read it slowly. If you don't understand anything, that's okay. Just begin to read the language and think about what is said and prayerfully consider how God might speak to you in chapters eight and nine as you finish off the book of Hebrews. Let me read a couple more verses. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, chapter nine, verse 11, of the good things that are to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the, his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not from the blood of goats, not from the blood of calves, 
but by means of his own blood. The blood that Jesus shared secures our redemption eternally, and we don't have to keep doing this every year. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus' blood is invaluable. It is priceless. In the book of Luke, we, in, we, we ended up in chapter 9 from our last podcast. Chapter 9, 51 to 62, the cost of following Jesus. I love the last verse, verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and following Jesus in the kingdom of God is a wonderful, wonderful way to live. But it's not an easy way to live because the believer has to choose to follow Christ. Has to choose to follow the Lord. All right. We continue on with chapter 10. That's sending out of the 72. He sends out the disciples and others to pray for those that need prayer. He's demonstrating the fact, or he's already demonstrated the fact that he heals, he sets free, he delivers, he lays hands on the sick and they recover. He does miraculous things. Now he wants to show his disciples and others how to do this. So he sends them out. He says, heal the sick. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he gives them instruction. He gives them authority. He gives them power. And they begin to do the things that he has done. This is a big step for the church. The 72 return and they give evidence of what happened in, in the middle of chapter 10 of Luke. In chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, that is where the famous, famous parable of the Good Samaritan, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan is found, followed by Martha and Mary and Martha's desire to make sure that everything is right uh, as they feed Jesus and welcome him. And Mary's desire is to sit at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus famously says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Sometimes we just need to sit with Jesus. Now, not forgetting the Good Samaritan, an amazing parable, probably the most famous parable in the Bible. That amazing story where God really calls us to be good Samaritans and to go and do likewise. Which of these proves to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, the good Samaritan was. The despised one was. The despised one of Israel, the Samaritan. And God Almighty tells us, our neighbor, we are to love our neighbor even our enemies, and we are to love them and we are to do good for them. So again, let us ruminate and think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, as I said to you, at the end of the week is Pentecost, where the Spirit of God comes down in Acts chapter 2. And so the daily lectionary gives us Isaiah chapter 11. Quickly go to Isaiah chapter 11. It's a wonderful text, 1 through 9, about the reign of the branch. This is about the Messiah that's coming and what kind of rule he's going to have. Beautiful, uh, beautiful chapter, verses 1 through 9. And then we have 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 13, which is talking about 
the coming of the Spirit of God. I strongly recommend that you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, chapter 2, 1 through 13, and we, he is dealing with the Spirit. He says in verse 10, these things God revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit of God is crucial to our growing in Christ. And so we have that text on the day of Pentecost. And finally, John chapter 14, 21 to 29, where John uh, speaks to us about the Holy Spirit and uh, encourages us uh, in his relationship with the Father uh, to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. He says in verse 26, the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So the coming of the Spirit in Pentecost is this extraordinarily important theological truth, theological reality, historical reality, where now Jesus ascended from the dead, which we celebrated last week in the sixth Sunday of Easter. Now Jesus, at the end of the seventh Sunday of Easter, the Spirit of God comes, he's ascended into heaven, and the Spirit of God comes to tell the people about himself. And so we will begin next week looking at the second half of the church here, the season of Pentecost. God bless you and enjoy your reading for the week of the seventh Sunday of Easter.